Army Ranger Sergeant Cameron Medic, 26 years old, was serving in Afghanistan defending our freedom when he entered into combat on January 12th, 2019. Sergeant Medic was wounded during the operation and was flown to Landstuhl, Germany, where he later succumbed to his wounds. Cameron was survived by his wife, who was pregnant with her first child at the time of his death. Why is this story important today? Cameron was actually a resident of Spearman, Texas, just 30 miles north of us here in Borger. When his body was flown into the area, the panhandle of Texas responded like it does for heroes who lay down their lives in service of our great nation. There was a caravan that drove his body and his family with a police escort and many veterans in front and behind. My oldest son uh, has always had an interest in the military, especially when he was younger. So him and I went and sat on the sidewalk of Cedar Street and awaited the caravan driving through Borger to his final resting place in Spearman. As we awaited the arrival, you could hear the sirens blaring, see the lights flashing, and after some time, you could see the American flag waving in the crisp January sky. After many Harley Davidsons saddled with veterans drove past us, black government-issued SUVs drove up. We removed our hats and stood at attention as his widow drove past and just behind her the hearse that carried his body. It is a moment I will never forget. As those sitting beside us, lined all along the road, erupted into cheers and applause, hailing the hero that had given his life so that we could be free. The moment my son and I awaited was announced hours beforehand, and we prepared ourselves to see the hearse that held his body. When the moment finally came, it was bittersweet as this American hero had passed defending our liberties, and the moment was over in less than 10 seconds. In today's text in Mark, we find ourselves in the actual moment that Christ the King arrives. He is not announced by the local or the national news or even regaled as a conquering king who would come to restore political power to Israel who was under Roman rule. He arrived just like you and I. The God-man, Jesus Christ, born in a town no one knew or cared about, and as we will see today, is inaugurated by his heavenly father for public ministry and visibly empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit and in the, in the fulfilling of the prophecies foretold, identifies with those that he saves. I want us to see for just a moment what's happening in Mark. This is Philippians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen for you. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. I'm hoping this sounds familiar to you as we go here often. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So Mark moves us immediately from John the baptizer, baptizing all those who came out, as we saw last week. They came out to him from Jerusalem, and they were, he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. And the moment that was long anticipated, the Messiah finally arrives. In Mark's telling, we do not get a birth narrative, much like the Lucan gospel gives us, but we can look to the Gospel of Luke and we can fill in the moments where Christ is born and things that take, up, that take place up until this moment in Mark's account. But I want to take a moment and I want to think on the birth of Christ as we near the Advent season, which is the Christmas holiday, because we are born sinners to the very core. We need redeeming from that moment. You need, you and I need redeeming from the moment you were born. And the question is asked, well, Ricky, how, I, I didn't even sin when I was conceived, but you were conceived in sin, according to Psalm 51. We need not only the life of Christ, we need not only his death and not only his resurrection, but we need his birth. You see, in Adam, we are born dead. In the second Adam, the true and better Adam, who is Christ, we receive a new birth. From the moment of our conception, we were headed to our own destruction. From the moment of Christ's conception, he was headed to our salvation. Let me say that one more time. From the moment we were conceived, from the moment of our conception, we were headed headlong into our own destruction. From the moment Christ was conceived, he was headed headlong into your salvation. St. Augustine says it this way, he being Christ, he was born of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. So look, if you would, at Mark chapter 1, if you would turn there with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. And it's titled there, The Baptism of Jesus. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Verse 12. The spirit immediately, there's our word. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So with the context in front of us about Mark and who he is and why he's writing it. And our gospel glasses on. We continue to look at Mark's account of who Jesus is. This is act one. Who is Jesus out of three acts that we're going to see in Mark? We have kept our eyes fixed, our breath held, as with, the pe as with the people in that day who anticipated the seed of the woman who was foretold in Genesis chapter 3. Finally, 
Finally, the moment arrives. Look at verse 9, if you would, there. The first three words, in those days. It helps us see a timeline. It would have been at some point in John the baptizer's ministry of proclaiming repentance and pointing to the one who was to come that Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives sometime in, in his ministry there that we see. He comes from, Jesus comes from a t particular place place being one that was obscure, forgotten, and filled with more Gentiles than Jews. This is Nazareth of Galilee. It would have been, listen to me, it would have been unthinkable for the Messiah, the one who was anticipated, to come from such a place. Look, if you would, in John chapter 7, in John's account, it'll be on the screen for you behind me. John chapter 7, verses 40 through 41. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? There was some confusion there. Like, You're telling me that Jesus came from this small rural town that is filled with more, uh, more Gentiles than it is Jews. It would have been unthinkable in that day for Jesus to come from this town. So why is this important to know? This is why. It shows us how Christ humbled himself. We read it in Philippians chapter 2. Christ humbled himself and identifies with humanity. His humiliation and identifying with sinful humanity is a reoccurring theme in these five verses and in the whole book of Mark. He came to John just like everyone else from that place, and he came from an un, a relatively unknown area. The end of verse 9, in, back in Mark chapter 1, the end of verse 9, it should make us sit up in our seats in attention. Listen, Jesus was baptized just like John, just like those John had been baptizing. So the question has to be, why would Jesus, the perfect Son of God, need to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? Was Jesus sinless? Yes. Morgan read it for us this morning out of Hebrews chapter 4. So why would Jesus need to be baptized? The answer is found in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at a lot of different places this morning, so be patient with me. Mark, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Those few words there that Jesus says, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. This means to meet every demand of the law and to submit himself in obedience to every word given by the Father. This is what to fulfill all righteousness means. Jesus is identifying with sinners in their baptism. Jesus does not need to be forgiven of anything. 
Jesus is identifying with sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for our sake, for your sake and my sake, he became sin. He made him sin who, who knew no sin. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way. Yet he gave, he made our sin his responsibility and gave us his righteous standing. He justified us before the Father. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Listen, in the waters of baptism, symbolically, the sins of man were left. Think about how many people were being baptized by John. The sins of man were left symbolically in the waters of baptism. And as Christ was plunged in those same waters, he willingly, lovingly, and sacrificially took those sins upon himself. Again, he identified with those being baptized. In the great messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, we see this identifying with. Isaiah 53, 11, should be on the screen for you. Isaiah 53, 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, Christ's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He is identifying with sinners. Let's move on to verses 10 and 11 of Mark chapter 1. If you ever want proof that we serve, love, and exist for a triune God, one God, three persons, these two verses are like an unsinkable ship that is neither tossed nor set off course in a sea of heresy, unbelief, and biblical illiteracy. Look at verse 10. Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism. And Mark uses that word. And immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And this language is important in this verse, in verse 10, to see the heavens rended, to see them ripped open. Much like if you fast forward to Mark chapter 15, when Jesus dies, he dies on the cross and he breathes out those final words, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit on the cross. The, the account that we have for us is that the veil was torn from top to bottom. In the same way, the heavens were torn open. And what Jesus sees there, as the heavens open up, as they're ripped open in front of him, the third person of the Holy Trinity descended, now listen, descended like a dove, not in the form of a dove, but this shows us how the Holy Spirit came and rested on Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit was doing in that moment, publicly anointing him and empowering him in a public format for ministry. Now, I want to pause here, okay, because there's been some confusion around this if you've been in the church for, for any time. This is not the moment Jesus became God. I don't care what Joel Osteen's wife says. This is not when, when Jesus became God. Jesus has always been God. He did not start being God at some point. He has always been the Son of God from eternity past into eternity future. 
You hear me? So this is not the moment that Jesus becomes God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and nothing can take that away from him. Dr. R.C. Sproul says this, what then was the significance of the Holy Spirit's descent on him? The Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. Remember, he is two in nature. We need to deal with this tension. He is 100% God and 100% human. Okay? That, that can never be separated from his nature. That is Jesus Christ, okay? It says, the Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. It was there that God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission he had been given. It had to be done in a public format. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, he empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission that had been given. Verse 11, this Trinitarian moment continues as the Father speaks his eternal affection on his Son. This would... This is not the only time the Father speaks from heaven either. We're going to see later in chapter in Mark that the Father actually speaks from heaven. This shows the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father begat, or He sent the Son to accomplish for those He redeems what they never could. You and I, listen. You and I could never stand justified before the Father without an advocate in our place. That's what Jesus came to accomplish in his perfect birth, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death for sinners, in his grave-robbing resurrection, in his ascension. It was all done in our place. Do you see this? This is the moment, the moment that the Father speaks his affection on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this glorious moment, for those witnessing it as well, we can see that, the, that a crowd witnessed it in John. The Father identifies three things. These are the three things, if you're a note taker, these are the three things that the Father identifies. Who his Son is, that's number one, how he loves him, and why he sent him. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen, I want to pause here for just a moment. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, what's true of Jesus is true of you. But listen, None of us could merit it. None of us could live a good enough life for the Father to say, you know what, I've done it this way for a millennia now, but you're, you're a little different. You, you come to church and you serve in kids and you give money to the church and you do all these good things. So I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna re rearrange things for you because you're actually a really good person. No one, listen, no one is righteous. If we are born sinners, then we need to be redeemed. We need a new birth. So for you 
listen, Christian, I am pleading with you that if you walk around with your head hung low, hat in hand all the time, well, God, just have some grace on me. Look to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That can never be taken away from you. You can never fall out of that. Do you understand that? This should be a moment where we erupt in worship. We celebrate the glory of God that he has made a way where there was no way. Do you hear me? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was baptized in that same place where sinners were baptized and took that sin upon himself. And he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his cleansing blood, atoning for things we could never atone for. Let's look at the last two verses of Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Just after this baptism, it says, The Spirit, what's that word there? Immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Mark very quickly tells us that the same Spirit that descended on Christ Jesus in the verses we just saw drives him out into the wilderness. We get an actual account of what happened in the wilderness between Christ and the devil. That's why he goes out into the wilderness is to be tempted by Satan. You can read this account in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. So I want to give you homework. Go home today and read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the account Matthew has for us of what happened out in the wilderness when Jesus was there for 40 days and 40 nights. But Mark still gives us the main idea for these two verses. Jesus, the Son of God, is being tempted by Satan. That's what we need to know about these two verses. That's why the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness is so that he can be tempted by Satan. Do you, are you making the connection here? The same Spirit who rested upon him drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. It is God who is driving him out to be tempted. That's the very first thing that he does to prepare him for ministry. Remember, the wilderness is a place of preparation. That's why Jesus is going out into the wilderness. So what does this help us see in these two verses? In Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came to man and woman, Regarding the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he tempted them with the desire to be like God. Adam knew God's command to not eat of that tree. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Yet he and his wife succumbed to the temptation, plunging all of creation, all of humanity into sin. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, this is Genesis 3, 24, God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. That's the same word there that's being used in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. 
God drives humanity out of his presence in the garden. The Spirit does the same thing in Mark chapter 1. He drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Not, listen, look at me for just a moment. Not because Jesus is disobedient like Adam and Eve. That's not why he's being driven out into the wilderness. It's because it's the very first thing that needs to happen. Much like Adam and Eve, it's for, it's for the true and better Adam to be tested by Satan. Listen, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam passed the test. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the one who was anticipated from Genesis 3.15 came and passed the test. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the men, sorry, disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the Adam that we all waited for, came and passed the test. Back in 2012, I was driving a bread truck, and you can imagine when you get hungry and you're driving a bread truck, what do you eat? Bread, okay? So one thing that I, I, I would do is because I would drive long distances when I was driving from Amarillo to different places delivering bread, I would listen to sermons. That was just something I wanted to do. Sometimes I would listen to music. Sometimes I would listen to lectures, like systematic theology lectures. I know that sounds super boring to you. And sometimes I would listen to sermons. And I remember driving to Canadian Texas early one morning. I had to be at a store by the time they opened at 7 a.m. So I was driving. It was dark. And I was listening to a preacher preach. And he was preaching out of Colossians chapter 1. Verses 11 through 14. I actually want to read this for you. Colossians 1, 11 through 14. It says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom ha we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And I remember him reading those few verses and then just taking time to explain what was going on. And I had to pull over to the side of the road in my bread truck and I wept. And I wept and I wept and I wept. 
I actually was crying uncontrollably that I had to call Callie. And it was, you know, four or five in the morning. And she's thinking, you know, you got in a wreck, something happened. But I called her and I said, Christ qualified me. I, I unqualified myself. It, the, the connection was made. There was this moment that my eyes were opened. And I said, Callie, I unqualified myself with sin. And Christ, the Father, sent Jesus to qualify me. There is no, I couldn't qualify myself. And she's like, okay. And it wasn't until I got home that day and I explained to her, babe, look, I, there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And I disqualified myself. And God in his amazing grace sends his son to qualify me. Is this not good news? This is what we see happening in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus comes and identifies with sinners and he qualifies us because there's no way we could qualify ourselves. There's no way we could stand before God one day when we give an account for our lives and say, but I was a really good person. We are disqualified. And Christ comes and he qualifies us with his perfect life, his substitutionary death on that wretched Roman cross that you and I deserved. And he defeats death after three days. This is the glorious gospel that we preach every week. And whether there was one person in here or a thousand, I would preach the same message. Look at me for just a moment. If you die in your sins, you will pay the penalty. And you will suffer under the wrath of Almighty God forever. Take this as a warning. But know this. Come to Christ and he will not reject you. If you know you are a sinner and you come to him and you say, there's no way I could qualify myself. He says, yes, because I qualified you. I made you good. I made you alive. Place your faith and your trust in him. That is my plea every week. And that is the plea that I, I will plea for the rest of my life. Whether I'm sitting with you in counseling or I'm I, preaching here. Place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and look to him who saves. Ben, I'm going to invite you to come up. Love this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, you stood before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. You see this beautiful exchange, this glorious exchange that happens, that Christ takes upon himself our sin, makes it his responsibility, and he gives us his code of righteousness. We stood before God as if we were Christ, and Christ stood before God as if he were us. He qualified us. The Father qualified us in Christ. 
So my invitation to you this morning is, if you're here this morning and you don't really know, you might not know if you're a Christian. Don't leave this place without knowing. Come to Christ. He will not reject you. If you're being crushed under the weight of your sin, place your faith and your trust in the one who redeems you from your sin, who cleanses you, who atones for you with his blood. Are you, the question is, are you still dead in Adam? Lastly, if you are in Christ, if you're in this place and you, you call yourself a Christian, you live as a Christian, do you see in, these, in this passage, this small passage, how Christ identified with us? How the Father sent him to qualify us? Do you, do you see the connections that are being made? That Mark is saying, look, this is the Christ who has come. He was plunged into those waters, just like those sinners were, just like you and I were if you've been baptized. He was plunged into those waters and took upon himself that sin. And he gave us righteousness. I want to lead you, continue to lead you in worship. Just because I'm up here preaching doesn't mean we're not worshiping anymore. To proclaim and herald his word is part of worship. So as we think through this, as we sing for just a few moments, think about this Christian, that there was no way you could qualify yourself, but Christ came and qualified us. Let's pray.